We're looking at uh, Malachi, just the first uh, five verses uh, as an introduction to this this little Old Testament book. And uh, so here, the word of the Lord to you, God's beloved children. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, We pray that you would instruct our hearts through your word. Your word is often so strange to us, and yet we find that it's filled with mysteries. So we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonders in your word. Send your Holy Spirit to apply the words of Malachi to our individual lives. You are the one who knows us better than uh, we know ourselves. And so we look to you in faith. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're entering into a new sermon series on Malachi. The last book of the Old Testament is written in the 5th century. And uh, you know, many of you may not know that the Old Testament story ends in about, about the 5th century, and there's about a 400-year silence uh, between God and his people before the coming of Christ. And so Malachi in the Old Testament is kind of the, the, this, final, this final word, this final statement of expectation leading up to Christ's coming. Of course, that's why we'll be looking at Malachi coming up to Christmas. Christmas is when Christ finally comes in his incarnation. And um, I'm excited to go through it together. It's amazing how many of the topics in this uh, ancient text are relevant to us now. And I think uh, that the opening verse, opening statement from Malachi is especially inviting. You see there in verse 2, after the, after the, uh, the greeting, you know, the, the statement of, that Malachi wrote this book, that this, these words through Malachi, it says in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the beginning of the book of Malachi. It's what the book's about, is the love of the Lord. And yet, I think for many of us, if you were to write a paragraph about what God's love is like, I don't think it would have sounded like this paragraph I just read from the first five verses of Malachi. I think it would be very different. But this, these opening five verses about God's love um, carry some of the deepest mysteries of God's love in the Bible. The love of God is not some vague energy in the universe that we tap into. The love of God in the Bible is the passionate, pursuing love of a lover or a father. It's far more multifaceted and rich than simply an energy. It's far more personal. And so this morning we're going to look at Malachi's version of the love of God and and see in particular three distinct 
marks. This is what they are. That God's love is sovereign, that God's love is wrathful, and that God's love is for all nations. God's love is sovereign, God's love is wrathful, and God's love is for all nations. Things that we, if you just naturally thought about what the love of God was like, you probably wouldn't have said these three things, and yet uh, here they are in Malachi, so important. So the first one is this. God's love is sovereign. Now, throughout the Bible, God is depicted as the great sovereign Lord and creator of the whole universe, that, you know, he sits enthroned and that nothing can thwart his purposes and everything happens according to his plan. And so whenever, obviously then, when the Lord talks, when the Bible talks about God's love, it's not kind of an equal thing where, you know, we love God and he loves that, you know, we're kind of co-pilots doing the same thing. It's much more the love of a king that he is bestowing on us. It starts with his initiative. It is his idea. It is his plans and his purposes. And so um, that's an essential part of the message of the Bible that grace, when God shows us grace, gives us love that we didn't earn, that we didn't merit, that we didn't even ask for, If that's how God's love is, it must come of his own initiative, his own idea, his own sovereign purposes, not of our works. And so when we realize that that about God's love, it it teaches us a couple things. The first is that we are resistant to his love. The reason why the Bible's always talking about God's sovereign love is because of how resistant we are to receiving it. And of course, you saw that there in verse 2 where Malachi begins with these words from the Lord himself. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So it's a startling opening to the book of Malachi. There's a dialogue happening, right? The Lord begins, he says, I love you. And then they say, well, how have you loved us? And actually much of the book of Malachi are these dialogues that happen between the Lord and between his people. And, uh, And the response of the people when the Lord says, I have loved you, their response is cynical. Their response is distrustful. They say, how have you loved us? Prove it that you've loved us. There's a certain boldness to say, how can you say that you've loved us? We don't don't see evidence that you you have loved us. And actually, uh, probably what's causing this response is because the context that Malachi was, was written in, you know, about 175 years before Malachi came, uh, the Babylonians invaded Judah, which is the southern uh, part of Israel, the only part of Israel that, that was left in the, in, in the 6th century, uh, the Babylonians came and invaded and took uh, the Israelites into exile and uh, destroyed, Jerusalem destroyed the temple. And uh, the Israelites spent 70 years in exile in, in Babylon. And then 70 years later, the Lord brought them back to their homeland. And there were all these great promises that when the exile ended, the Lord would give new hearts to his people, and they would really turn to the Lord, and he would love them, and they'd rebuild the temple, and then the Messiah would come, and there would be this great golden age in Israel where their great king would come, and he would conquer all their enemies. And so they came back from from exile, and then they rebuilt the temple, and yet here they are a 100 years now in Malachi, a 100 years after they had uh, returned from exile. They're still living under the oppression of the Persians. And, uh, and they're actually facing a lot of uh, um, economic decline. Uh, you know, the agriculture was suffering from pests and from plagues. And so what they are saying is, why should we believe that you love us? Where's the evidence? Look at our life. How does our life show that you love us? I think many of us have a similar 
sentiment. We are reluctant to believe that God's purposes for us are really good. And so when we hear about God's love, it sounds like a cliche. You know, it's like, yeah, we've heard about God's love. We've heard we talk about it. I'm sick of hearing about God's love. There is a um, cynicism that we have because we had certain expectations. You know, when I became a Christian, I knew that the almighty, powerful God was going to love me, and I, I had a picture of what the almighty God loving me was going to look like, and it hasn't gone according to my plans of what I was picturing. And so there's a frustration that God's love did not look like what I, what, what I thought it would look like, and this is the spirit of those who Malachi is writing to. And that's also, you know, by the way, the default of the human heart. It is our default to be distrustful that God is really loving and good. And so that's why I need to take control of my own life because God's not going to take care of me. God doesn't really have good purpose for me. And we're cynical about who God is. And so the amazing thing about the prophet Malachi is here at the beginning of his prophecy, he actually lets the people say that. You're distrustful and cynical. Their cynicism actually makes it into his prophecy. He gives them a voice. And yet, with the question, though, comes an answer. How have you loved us? The Lord is going to answer them. And it may not be the answer that we were expecting because God's sovereign love not only reveals to us our resistance, and we're resistant to God's love. That's why he has to be the sovereign one because we're not going to ask for it. We're distrustful of him. But God's sovereign love also means that God is persistent. We may be resistant, but he is persistent. Uh, he has a persistent, choosing, unconditional love. And it is a love that God does not give equally to all people. It's an important part of this text. Look at the end of the second part of verse 2 says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. That's an interesting reference that goes back to uh, the book of Genesis. When Isaac had these twins, uh, uh, Abraham's son Isaac had these two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older of the twins. And usually, you know, in, you know, throughout human history, it was only the oldest son that was the chosen son that was going to carry on, you know, was going to lead the family. And the Lord always reverses that in the Bible. He says, no, I don't choose the oldest son. I choose the younger son because I turn the world kind of upside down. And I've chosen Jacob and I've set my love and blessing on him. And it was, it's interesting, this reference to Genesis from Malachi, the apostle Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is the famous chapter about election that the Apostle Paul wrote. And this is what Paul says in Romans 9. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, Jacob and Esau, they're babies. They hadn't done anything yet. In order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. You hear that? He quotes Malachi chapter 1 in Romans 9. And you see, in order to say that God's love for us is not based on anything in us, you know, we're resistant to his love. We, put, we run away from his love. And to say that his love is not based on anything in us, but it's unconditional, must mean that it is based on him. His choosing, electing love, and he chose Jacob to set his love on Jacob. Now, this will require some explanation, because some of you hear that and you say, 
but Esau I have hated. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. What is that all about? Well, first of all, in saying this to Malachi, you know, the story of Jacob and Esau happened 1,500 years before Malachi is speaking to the Israelites. And what, one of the things the Lord is saying is, listen, the love that I set on you, I set on it 1,500 years ago. And you want to read the story of Israel, how unfaithful they've been, how resistant they've been to my love, and what have I done for 1,500 years? I have not failed on that promise that I made 1,500 years ago. My love is persistent. It is not, you know, I am not deterred by your sin and by your unfaithfulness. I have pursued you, and don't forget how persistent I've been. You're going to ask me if I've loved you? 1,500 years says, yes, I have. 1,500 years I've been with you, and I've been your God. But you also say, well, but you know, what about saying that he hates Esau? God hates people? Don't we say that God loves everybody? And uh, doesn't God have love for everyone? Well, first of all, it's important to say that there are certainly things that God hates. There are things in this world that he better hate. You know, uh, we were having a discussion in our, in our uh, home group uh, about the Syrian refugee crisis, and we looked at the picture of that, that boy that was all over social media who I, I think a bomb had blown up near him. He had blood all down his face. He was in a hospital. He was sitting there just obviously in shock and just the whole world horrified. And we should ask, does God hate that? That this child is growing up in that violence? God better hate that. If that makes, if you hate that, then God better hate it as well, right? And uh, so there are certain things that, of course, God hates. But there is another use of the word hate uh, in the Bible that's used here. And hate can also mean in the Bible that God did not love someone as much as he loved someone else. So, for example, Jesus uses this definition of hate when he says, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister, uh, you're not, you cannot follow me. You can't be one of my followers. You're not worthy to be called one of my followers. And Jesus also tells us that we should honor our mothers and fathers. He, we know that he believes that we should do that. So, of course, he thinks we should love our mothers and fathers. But what Jesus is saying is that your allegiance to me has to be so great that the thing that defines your life, you know, your mother and your father, they have all these plans for you of who you're going to be and what kind of dreams they have about your life. And they're putting on you all those kinds of expectations. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to let go of those expectations. And the thing that's going to define your life are my expectations. And your parents are going to feel like you hate them because you've rejected all their plans for you, even though you don't hate them. But you have to be willing to do that if you're going to be one of, our, one of my followers. And so hate does not mean uh, disgust, uh, a hatred of a person. It says that your love for me should be so much greater that it seems like hate. And so how can we say that God's love... Um, and, oh, let me add this. We also know from other places in the Bible that God gave blessing to Esau and his descendants. He didn't totally hate him. He didn't only give him bad things. He actually created this nation out of him named Edom. And so how can we say that God's love is persistent through all the ups and downs and through all our persistent sins, through our cynicism? It is only if God's love is based in his election and not in us. And now you might say, but doesn't God love everyone the same? God does not love everyone the same. God has not loved all of us sitting in this room the same. Actually, he's loved every single one of us individually differently. 
He, your story has not been my story. And the ways God's dealt with you, and it shows God's great care for every single individual on this planet. That he does, his love is not like a vending machine that just pops out a square of love that everyone gets the same block. That's not what it's like. It is a careful attention that he gives to each one of our lives. And so he does not love us all the same. He loves us according to his own purposes because his love is sovereign. And so that's the first thing that we learn from this passage. An important part of God's love is that it's a sovereign love. The second thing, though, that we see from this passage, and we see through much of the Bible, is that God's love is wrathful. And it's an important thing to understand about God's wrath in the Bible. The way the Bible describes God's wrath is when God gives people over to their desires. That's kind of the worst thing that can happen to you is that God gives you the desires of your heart and you get to follow the sinful desires and wicked desires that are self-destructive. And if he just gives you over, that is the supreme act of his wrath. And you might even say here, well, isn't God in this passage actively destroying Edom? It's talking about Edom, who's Esau's uh, uh, descendants. But look at what it says in verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. So the description here that Malachi is giving of Edom is a, it's a very self-sufficient nation. They're very self-confident. There's a great pride in them. They say, we can overcome whatever we want. We trust in our own strength. And this is what it says in verse, in verse 4. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry. And so there's this parallel with the Lord tearing down and them being called the wicked country. And so the way that they're destroyed is they're just given over to their own wicked desires, and God gives them, if that's what you want, then you can have your way. It will be your own self-destruction. This is what the wrath of God looks like in the Bible. And so you might say, well, how can you call that love? How can we call it wrathful love? I mean, aren't those opposites, wrathful love? Well, on the one hand, you know, wrath is love if you're trying to protect someone. You know, and that's one of the things that's happening here is that Edom, who was uh, Israel's na- neighbors, their nation, was constant, had been for centuries harassing Israel, attacking them, violently coming and invading them. And, uh, and so for God to say, one of the ways that I love you is by protect you. You know, if you have children, your wrath would protect them. If someone was going to try to hurt your children, you're going to stand up and you're going to use your strength to defend them. And that's an appropriate expression of love is wrath, is protection. But wrath is also most deeply expressed towards the people we care about. And I'll give you a personal example of this. Um, When I was a teenager, I've shared with uh, uh, most of you that I was in uh, steep a rebellion against my parents. I, I, when I was 15, I dropped out of school. I, my parents had, when they told me to be home at a certain time, I had complete disregard for them. I came home whenever I wanted. Um, when I was 14 years old, I stole my parents' car when I was drunk and totaled their car as, as a 14-year-old in, in the middle of the night. And uh, I was brought home by the police drunk on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. And, uh, and you know, uh, Charges were brought against me for shoplifting. And you have to ask the question, do you think my parents were angry about that? 
Do you think they were angry? Do you think there was wrath? Of course there was wrath. When you have a rebellious son, love in the Bible does not look like peaceful serenity in the face of evil. And do you think they were more angry because they were loving parents? Yes. They were passionately committed to me because they, you know, they believed in my potential and they were devoted to me. It made them that much more angry. And so what did they have to do? What did their love look like for me? Well, first of all, it looked like they had to kick me out of their house when, they were, when I was 15 years old. And they said, you're not welcome here. Because love says this home is a place of love. And as much as we're willing to give you second chances, we're going to reason with you. We're going to hope any glimmer of light we'll see, we'll follow it. But at some point, we have to say that we have to maintain the love of this home, and you're not welcome here until you're ready to be a part of that love. And so they had to send me out on the street and say, you have to go find a place to sleep on your own. And of course, what is their hope is that I would see the foolishness in my ways, that I would come back to their home. And eventually, what they had, I had to be picked up in the middle of the night, and they sent me away for a year and a half to reform school, away from them. I didn't talk to them for six months. Do you think that was sleepless nights? Do you think there were tears? Do you think there were agony about that? Absolutely. But that was also judgment. That was the judgment that needed to come on me. That was wrath and anger and frustration and love all wrapped together. And this is the way the Bible talks about the love of God. It is not the cool, emotionless energy of love in the universe. It is the passionate, persistent, pursuing love of a father for his rebellious son. And for any of you who have had rebellious children, you know how closely paired passionate love and deep anger are. They are paired together. And that is because you've been made in the image of God. And that's the very character of God when the things that he loves are being destroyed, the response is wrath. And so I put on, if you turn to uh, page three in your bulletin, I put a quote from you. This is from Becky Pippert. She, uh, Tim Keller quotes, quotes her in his great book, The Reason for God. And this is what she says. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And so you want to know the love of God, the fiery love of God in the Bible. It is the love of a sovereign king, and it is the love of a passionate father, wrathful love of a passionate father. But there's one more piece of God's love that we see in this passage that we absolutely need to complete the picture of what God's love is like, and that, that is that God's love is for all nations. And it's interesting, these are, you know, this is strange verses reading through and following the logic here, but as immediately as he says this word of judgment over Edom, look at what he says in verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. 
He says that God's sovereign choosing love that he set upon Israel to be his chosen people is actually extending beyond the borders of Israel. It's not supposed to just stay in Israel. It's supposed to go beyond and that all the nations are supposed to know of God's greatness. God's love has a mission to it. God's love is persistent to just not stay with some chosen people, but to extend to all the nations of the earth. And of course, that's what we see. Here we are, uh, you know, thousands of years later, after Malachi, on the other side of the planet, and here we are worshiping the Lord. His love has been extended to, his, to us. His love has sought us out. And, you know, har- you know, maybe very few of us are even Jews, a part of that chosen nation from the Old Testament, because the love of God is extended beyond the borders of Israel. And this is an important principle in the Bible, is that though God chooses people to set his love on, he never sets his love on them just for those people. It's always to extend it beyond them. So, you know, for example, in the Old Testament, the first person who's most famously chosen is Abraham. Abraham was worshiping idols in Mesopotamia. He knew nothing about God. God says, you know what? I'm going to take you out of your father's land. I'm going to put you a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a new great nation. I'm uh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. It's not for your sake I'm choosing you. It's for the other nations. And in you, all the families of the earth will find blessing. God chooses to set his love on people to extend his love through them. And so God's love is for all nations. And so where does the sovereign love of God the wrathful love of God and the love for all nations come together. How do they all reconcile with one each other with each other? And of course, the answer that we see the love of God most perfectly in Jesus. He is ultimately the chosen one, the one on whom God has sovereignly placed his love. He is his beloved son, and yet he's also the one who took the wrath of God upon himself on the cross for our sake. And he's also the one who's brought the kingdom, who has opened the kingdom of God to all nations and is now drawing all nations to himself. And so if you want to know the love of God, not the vague energy of the universe, but the deeply personal, deeply passionate, choosing, wrathful, universal, pursuing love of the creator of this world, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the love of God.